Noteworthy stories by WDAV Classical Public Radio celebrate the rich diversity of classical music's past, present, and future that's often overlooked. The weekly series, hosted by me, Loki Karuna, serves up bite-sized stories about the lives and music of artists of color, women, and others from historically underrepresented groups. Check out this week's Noteworthy Artist and catch up on past episodes at noteworthyclassical.org. My name is Loki Karuna, and this is Triloquy. Thanks so much for tuning in, and happy August. Hard to believe summer is rolling by, huh? Better enjoy it while you can. Always a pleasure to spend the summer months and all seasons right here with you. Huge thanks to all of the returning listeners. We couldn't do this show without your continued support. Thank you all very much to all of the new listeners. If this is your first time checking out this little broadcast of mine. Triloquy is a show that challenges the traditional notions of classical music. Each week I come here to the mic to offer stories from the field of so-called classical music. I share some of the really incredible conversations that I get to have with some of the movers and shakers in the field. Uh, And I also offer a weekly triloquy, my chance to be as unfiltered as I dare to be on an issue in our world, specifically in this industry of ours, always with a soft glove, though, not too much. (laughs) For more on Triloquy, to listen to past opuses and to donate to the show, hop on over to our website. That's T-R-I-L-L-O-Q-U-Y dot O-R-G. I'm going to dedicate this week's Triloquy to recording rights and the ways in which orchestra unions are successfully keeping composers from spreading their wings and getting a little exposure. Yes, I know that you can't pay your car note with exposure, but this is important. So that's coming up at the end of today's show. I also have uh, the great pleasure of sharing with you my recent conversation with Luke McIndifer, who is the artistic director and CEO of the National Children's Chorus. That's coming up in about 10 minutes, if I don't keep running my mouth. But first, let's quickly go to the news as we do here. So Florida is Florida-ing once again. And this time, The topic of slavery is at the center. This caught my attention this week, and I wanted to bring it here. You probably already know, but in case you don't, Ron DeSantis is running for president, and he's doing a really great job of showing himself, especially in light of the way he's trying to rewrite history down there in the so-called Sunshine State. Several months back, he drastically shifted the ways in which black history can be taught down there, and earlier this summer... He doubled down. I'm going to read here from NBC News. It says Florida's public schools will now teach students that some black people benefited from slavery because it taught them useful skills. Part of a new African-American history standard approved uh, last month back in July. So I don't know about you, but for me, this is pretty shocking. I've never seen a number of think pieces and dialogues that actually consider the idea of black people benefiting from slavery. So, of course, what Ron DeSantis did down there is, um, you know, the impetus for a lot of things, but it's really showing how people are actually engaged with that idea in some way. The idea 
uh, is that skills that black people were forced into on plantations gave way to opportunities for both them and their ancestors. I, I guess skills that they wouldn't have learned back in Africa is the is the idea. Um, <laughs> I'll be as brief as I can here, but really, you know, the problem is threefold. First and foremost, black success in this country is marginal at best. We just have to admit that, especially if you focus on American descendants of slaves like I am. Now, I've done okay for myself, as have many other melanated individuals. There's a lot of rich black people out here, a lot of black people in the middle class. Um, but, you know, there are far many more people with a lot of different other circumstances going on. You know, I have mounds of student loan debt and stress to match that I wouldn't have. You know, it wouldn't be part of my reality if I were running around in Africa <laughs> somewhere with a loincloth on, okay? The implication... Uh, behind this way of defining success, you know, by what has been marginally uh, documented, you know, among black people, you know, isn't correct. And on top of that, this Western idea of success um, and benefit can't only be measured with the Western ruler, which brings me to point number two. Um, the African continent is not some untamed jungle where people <laughs> where people never figure anything out. The city of Lagos in Nigeria has over 15 million people in it. How many of you live in a city of that size? Um, what, New York is at about 19 million. And after that, uh, at least in the United States, uh, you probably have Los Angeles, which is clocking in, I'm, I think, somewhere around 13 million these days. So this nonsense of uh, African ignorance that couldn't have possibly resulted in so-called civilization is not only racist, but just untrue. Um but again, let's pretend that it's all nothingness over there with tribes huddled around a campfire. So what? That sounds pretty good to me these days. You mean, <laughs> you mean to tell me that I get to eat organic food, enjoy nature, deal with the occasional lion or black mama and just be at peace? Hmm. <laughs> anyway, but point number three <laughs> is that um, it's really the most important. So this show is all about decolonizing classical music, right? Well, at the end of the day, that's just one step toward the actual goal, which is decolonizing our society and decolonizing our way of thinking towards something that serves all people, a society where there aren't homeless folks, where everyone is living a, a, a life that uh, that build, fulfills them. You know, that, that is really what we're getting toward. So DeSantis isn't the only person to latch on to this idea of benefit from slavery. And shamely, shamefully, I've seen a number of uh, black people get in into that side of the argument. And this is a prime example of a colonized mind, not just the black, it's really all people are dealing with mental colonization, you know, at the end of the day. But I just feel like I needed to say that if your mind is set up to think of slavery as something of benefit, how can you possibly begin to understand the Negro spiritual as a foundational aspect of American music, America's classical music with a mind that's colonized in that way, how could you recognize and honor folks like Louis Armstrong and Nina Simone and Duke Ellington in the way that they deserve both in and outside of the music world? Things, these things connect. Um, and as a, a music industry, I think it's up to us to be the example of how to decolonize our mind through our engagement of so-called classical music. So we have to, you know, 
program something that challenges the norm, we have to tell our artistic directors and managers that we require black music to be programmed every single time we are on stage. That is one of my rules. And that needs to be everybody's rule. If we can't decolonize classical music, we certainly can't decolonize our minds and talk about liberation. So let's consider our work as classical agitators out here integral to the larger and to the broader dialogue of ending these racist modes of thinking and teaching the next generation. It's very important. Again, these things are connected. If we have people out here talking about there is a benefit to slavery, that means down the line somewhere we have someone disrespecting black music and disrespecting the legacy of black music in this country and really to the world. So, you know, For us, for the next generation, let's do this work and let's pay attention to these conversations as they're happening and understand how we can connect our own work and our activism to them to to make positive causes toward positive action. But anyway, speaking of the next generation, um, I'm extremely excited once again to share my recent conversation with Luke McEnderfer, um, who's the artistic director and CEO of the National Children's Chorus. I'll read a little um, about Luke here um, from the organization's website. It says Luke McEnderfer is a Grammy Award winning American conductor and one of the most compelling visionaries in the classical music world today. His dynamic career spanning over two decades has been shaped by an unwavering commitment to ambitious innovation, artistic creativity, and musical excellence. Currently, he serves as artistic director, president, and CEO of the National Children's Chorus, one of the fastest growing and most successful youth arts organizations in the United States. His conducting collaborations include work with the Los Angeles Philharmonic, American Youth Symphony, Los Angeles Master Chorale, New York City Master Chorale, the Joffrey Ballet, and many, many others. So uh, we start talking about where his love for music came from in this dialogue And we sort of just unravel things from there. So to get us into this dialogue, I'd like to share a performance by the National Children's Chorus, if that's okay. Uh, Luke isn't on the podium in this recording. It's uh, the phenomenal Alexander Lloyd Blake who's leading the ensemble. But uh, this should most certainly be considered a product of Luke's hard work leading this world-class children's ensemble and this world-class organization. The piece you'll hear them perform is called Pani Karang by composer Gayatri Kondinya. A really great example here of the exquisite sounds of the National Children's Chorus to get us into my conversation with the organization's artistic director and CEO, Mr. Luke McIndifer. Hope you enjoy. Actually, thinking back, I think it's sometimes a little bit difficult to think earlier than six, but when I do, what comes up for me is that my grandmother sang in her church choir, and I remember being in the congregation with my grandfather, knowing that my grandmother was up there making music, and I would always turn back and look in the choir loft, and um, I admired her so much and uh, I loved the music that she made. And then sometimes to put me to sleep at night, she would sometimes just uh, kneel by my bedside and she would sing to me. 
And I definitely know that uh, music was often played throughout our home. So I think that when it came to wanting a piano, that was just a natural extension of my curiosity in truth about music. Uh, in addition to the fact that my grandmother, whom I loved so much and I admired so much, was uh, it was something that was very dear to her heart as well. That church connection is very significant for many people across many experiences and and many cultures. You know, that's certainly a story that uh, that I, I can tell about my early love for music. I wonder if there's still a connection between you know that impetus for your entering music and the way you engage it today. Uh, are there many church concerts? Are you a a secret uh, tenor section leader at a church somewhere? <laughs> I wonder if you could speak to that. To, uh, to be honest with you, there are many moments, I, I mean, just because in, in running the National Children's Chorus, we, we're a national educational institution at this point, and uh, we do sing sacred music, but it's not within the context of a religious service uh, or, a, you know, a religious ceremony. But for many years, you know, that's how I got a lot of my experience. I was the music director at a Catholic church from the age of 16, you know, all the way through uh, when I, uh, 26, when I, or 25, when I started doing this. And I loved it so much. It felt really great uh, being a part of the celebration, you know, of the service that was not necessarily the center of attention, but something that was beautiful meant to facilitate the, the ritual. And uh, I sometimes think back very nostalgically on those days because I loved church music so much. And, uh, and no, I do not do it anymore, but I, um, I miss it. I really do. For so many parents, mine included, the idea of investing time, money, resources into music felt like an unsure bet almost. I can remember my dad saying when I was 12 years old, well, we don't know if we should buy you a bassoon because we don't know if you're going to stick with it. His saying that to me sounded ridiculous. Of course, I'm going to stick with it, but I can understand that many parents don't have that perspective. I wonder how uh, you engage that with uh, the children that you work with. Do you do much parent engagement, convincing them that, no, your child really has a gift, your child really has a passion? I wonder if you can uh, address that. Absolutely. And I don't blame those parents. Uh, I think I think singing is a little bit different because your instrument is for free. Sure. <laughs> uh, we're, we're, we're born with it, you know, and we use it as soon as we're born, uh, screaming usually in, in the delivery room. Uh, and uh, but a bassoon or a violin, my goodness, like the last parent who told me that they bought such an instrument, you know, they could have easily have purchased a car. So I understand those kind of investments. Uh, I would say though that being a young person is all about exploring and trying different things. So I don't think a parent should ever take the perspective that they should only invest in things that they feel their child is going to pursue long-term. Many times what gives a child certainty about what they want to do is trying out all of the things that they don't want to do. Mm. Uh, and so you try something out, you don't, you say, oh, no, that's not for me. But now you know it because you've tried it. As opposed to imagine if you only did the thing that you liked, there would always be some sort of doubt in your mind, uh, wondering, 
may I, what, what I have liked this thing or what I have liked trying this other field. And so my advice to parents is to allow children to try as many things as possible, not only within the realm of music, but we highly encourage sports, ballet, uh, uh, drawing, uh, you know, our, our students are have so many eclectic interests at the National Children's Chorus. We respect and we support all of them. We we never discourage any of them in favor of doing more of our program. I definitely feel exposure to many different activities is really important for a child, and that's how a child comes to discover who they are and what they like. So, how do you approach? engaging the child who is being made to do this thing that their parents think will be good for them. Do you have any stories about the child who is made to be in the space transforming into the child that wants to be in the space? Yes. And I, I think you, you may find this to be a little bit entertaining, but I do not allow that. So <laughs> if, um, I, I literally one time uh, at, at the, and it, that occurred at least at at the beginning, when I was 26 years old and first starting, there were a few children in the chorus who uh, who really didn't want to be there, but their parents made them because it was quote unquote good for them. But we really spent time reversing the culture at the National Children's Chorus. And uh, we made the decision that we will not allow any child in the chorus who does not want to be there hmm. because it must be their choice. Um, the latest incident I can remember is probably about six years ago. There was a boy that, you know, as he was not uh, um, uh, performing well in class and listening to the teacher. So the teacher sent him out of the room for a while. And as I passed in the hallway, he said, I just don't want to be here. And I said, you don't. I said, what would you rather be doing? And he said, well, I'd rather be playing with my friends, you know, uh, soccer on the grass. I said, well, I support that 100%. I said, so let's go to the front right now and call your mom and have your mom pick you up and you go play soccer. And then he immediately like jumped back and was so shocked that I had said that because he's so used to being made to do uh, what he, you know, what he quote unquote didn't want to do. And he said, well, 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 no, no, I don't call my mom. And, you know, I, he said, I said, why not? I said, you want to go play soccer? I was like, I'm not going to stop you. And he said, well, I, 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 I want to sing. And I said, you do, but you just said you didn't want to be in the classroom. So he then quickly, he, he said, no, no, I do want to be in the classroom. I said, are you sure? He said, yes. And I said, okay, well, let me open the door and let you back in. So now when we've changed it and it's his choice, Guess what? He went back in the classroom and he was a spectacular student from that point on through the rest of the session. So it's very important, I feel, for um, the decision to come from the student and you have to approach it that way psychologically. So uh, once they feel it is their choice, they feel ownership over it. And that's when they start to personally invest. So the secret is to call a student's mom or to threaten to call a student's mom. But, 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 <laughs> but, not, but not with a tone that, that you know, you're trying to punish them. I right. was sincerely telling him that, no, I, I really think you should play soccer today if that's what you want to do. Um, and if you don't want to be here, that's okay. Yeah. And so, but, but, but a lot of kids are shocked by that sort of statement because they're used to being told what to do. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's very powerful to allow them to choose uh, and so uh, that was a good example. So I wonder if you'll just speak generally about the National Children's Course. This seems to be much more than just an after-school club or, or something like that. There's, there's real teaching happening. Absolutely. 
I think that when first starting at 26 years old, having just gotten my master's degree in conducting, uh, like so many students at that age, I am going to build the greatest children's chorus in the world. And uh, it's all about the music and, you know, because you know, that's what we're focusing on in, you know, in school. And I would say several years into it, though, we started to see all of the benefits of being in the chorus and how uh, through music, these students' lives were being changed. It was affecting so many different areas of their lives. We were receiving so many shocking testimonials from parents, including things like, my child didn't speak for the first five years of her life, uh, never wanted to participate in class, and I just wanted to let you know that this past Thursday, she sang a solo in front of her entire school. And, you know, that's through the confidence building. And so uh, we started to realize that through music, people really are set forth on a path of self-discovery. And I think that is true for young people very powerfully. I also think it's true for adults who participate in music as well. I, I have my theories as to why that's true, but... Uh, I've worked in enough years in doing this that I have seen it hundreds and hundreds of times. So we're well aware that, yes, music is a path of self-realization, self-development. It's one thing to take on a role like yours as a great musician, as a great facilitator, but there must be other CEO-style skills that you had to learn along the way. Yes, all of them. <laughs> so, and it's true that none of them are really covered in getting your master's degree in conducting. And that's not to say anything um, negative about conducting education. The, that education is meant to teach you how to conduct. And they did that very well. I got my degree at UCLA and uh, I'm very grateful for the teachers I got to work with. But in, in, in running an organization, um, of course, uh, I was very proactive, though, in learning as much as I could about uh, board governance, about financials, about uh, uh, corporate culture, about um, uh, creating a team of employees that's, that are really uh, coordinated in a way that can support a vision and an infrastructure as large as the National Children's Chorus, which doesn't really exist. Um, you know, in the same way that we do anywhere else. Is there a secret sauce that you're able to share with us? I mean, the rapid growth of this organization is is really notable, something that not many other organizations can celebrate in the way that the National Children's Corps can. I think there is a secret sauce for sure. I think that we are, uh, the secret sauce is that we are 100% in tune with what our students want and need. And we're also 100% in tune with what our parents want and need. And that, I think, is a differentiating factor between the way that we run and the way that other traditional uh, independent children's choruses run. Uh, from what I've seen, um, a lot of their structure is, this is how we operate. This is how it is. If you like it, great. If you don't, you know, too bad. Uh, <laughs> we... At the National Children's Chorus, of course, our standards are high, but we listen. We listen to what the needs of the students are. And I'm constantly checking in because the landscape is changing so quickly. I mean, just imagine the psychological needs of a child in 2023 compared to, say, 2018. Right. 
radically different. Uh, the need for um, emotional support, mental health, the need to be seen, heard, recognized, and acknowledged as a human being. Like, of course, those things were always important, but of heightened importance now. And so there are many different um, items in place that we have designed as part of the curriculum to ensure that we are meeting those needs of the parents and students. And I'm also very clear on if there's something that they don't want or don't value, because we don't invest in those things. So uh, it's, it's important for us that they get a very strong musical education, but it's also important that I feel we're meeting their needs on a much larger scale. And that's the secret sauce because it resonates and then it's just contagious. And so that's where I feel the, um, we do ask, how do you hear about us? You know, and we do a lot of different marketing tactics when, uh, when we're, uh, in our recruitment stages, but by far the the uh, most of the new members of the National Children's Chorus are by word of mouth, hmm. which just goes to show you it's it's recommendations from current members. Yeah, what I was going to ask was how does that conversation relate to repertoire selection? I wonder if that goes into this idea of meeting the needs of the students and the parents. Absolutely, and so there's been a lot of changes in terms of repertoire selection. Uh, and uh, this is another differentiating factor that, uh, that I see at the NCC uh, that's more common in professional orchestras and larger organizations, generally speaking in, uh, you know, um, in those type of organizations, there's a team and a committee, an artistic planning committee and a team that plans out the repertoire for an entire year. Hmm. Uh, in a chorus, it's usually the conductor, the main, the main conductor. And while that can be fine, especially if that person is skilled and with good musical tastes, you're just getting one perspective and one person's preferences and what one person likes. What I love uh, in 2020 when we enacted our artistic planning committee is that we brought on such a diverse group of artistic professionals in the organization whose job it was to each come up with their top 15 or top 20 list based on the theme that we had chosen for the year. And so the perspective we're getting is so eclectic. It's from so many different people. We now have a hundred pieces to choose from the top 100 from all of these talented people. And then we whittle that down all the way, you know, down to the, you know, say the 12, to 16 pieces that are performed at the at our, at our major performances, say like at Carnegie Hall two weeks ago, the the level of uh, all the levels and layers that it took to finally get to that program that you heard in the concert uh, is very comprehensive, and it really just shows. I think you can do so much more with the collective knowledge of a team than even with one extremely competent person. Yeah, you use the word diversity. I want to pull that thread a little bit. The National Children's Chorus isn't a group of one particular age group. It's really a, a wide range of, of children. I wonder if you can speak to how you engage handling an eight-year-old versus a 17-year-old, you know, in, in the span of this work. Right. And so our organization educates students from five all the way through 18 or even a little bit older than that. And we, we have about 135 employees 
obviously when we're choosing an instructor to work with our five and six year olds, uh, they have to have a unique gift to work with that age group. Mm -hmm. uh, I will admit that I do not. <laughs> and so, like uh, one of our, um, or one of uh, someone that I'm close with had said, can you personally do the audition and meet this five-year-old of a close friend of mine? I said, sure, I'll do it. I was as friendly as I could be during, you know, my interaction with this five-year-old, but I don't know if she was having me because she, she, was, she, was, she was really quiet. Her mom in the background is saying, gosh, she's not normally like this. And I'm thinking to myself, oh my gosh, I'm completely bombing this audition. So I told her mom, I said, let's, let's reschedule this. And I actually want to bring in um, Ms. Adams, who works with our uh, youngest, our prelude level in Los Angeles. And let's redo this audition. I think uh, uh, it might, we might have a much better result. And of course, that was the truth. So uh, for me, uh, students at about 11 or 12 and up, uh, that's generally the the group that I connect with the most and, um, you know, and, and, and work with most frequently as well. Yeah, it takes a lot of honesty and transparency for you to admit that you were bombing an audition, but it wasn't you auditioning for something, you know? <laughs> right, right, right. It, I mean, the student is auditioning for you, but at the same time, the truth is um, we're auditioning for the student as well. If the student doesn't like the energy that they're receiving during the audition, or, I mean, they can choose any activity that they want to do. And to for them to choose us we really have to be something that they want to be a part of so absolutely we're auditioning for them so and i think that, that, that's a way of thinking that we all could benefit from you know on a job interview or, or or anything you know it really does go both ways it does it does and we don't write that down but that is but it but it is it still is 100 percent true many instrumentalists well i'll say wind instrumentalists start you know, anywhere between fifth and seventh or eighth grade, you know, that 10 to 12 uh, year old age, uh, th that, that range. I wonder from your experience, is there a critical age to really grab a young vocalist? I mean, getting a five-year-old involved, you know, is, is very great. Is it too late at 14 or, or 15 to try to bring in a, a child into this, into this art form? Uh, I would never say that it's too late, but I would say that there is a lot more undoing hmm. of, um, uh, and uh, not, not for this to sound negative anyway, but, uh, but of bad habits and bad technique, uh, technique that they perhaps learned from a voice teacher that wasn't really qualified in teaching healthy singing, uh, um, you know, uh, methodologies to the students. We really stress at the National Children's Chorus that technique is not the same thing as style. Mm -hmm. So when you have a great technique and a healthy technique at singing, when you are 22, you can decide to sing pop. Like, trust me, if you're if you are a uh, a well-trained singer and you know how to use your instrument truly, where you can establish strength on every note in the entire range, of course you can sing pop. That's just a style. You impose the style. Same thing with Broadway. Broadway's a style. It's not a technique. And so uh, what we try to teach, we, we call it the bel canto singing technique, but we teach a healthy form of singing 
which engenders power and strength on every note in the staff. We teach them to have a powerful head tone. We also teach them to use the lower part of their register and to sing with it pro properly, in addition to the passaggio, which is the area connecting the chest voice to the head voice. And so with all of those skills, the students can really specialize or go into any musical style that they wish in the end. So uh, a lot of times when we have a 14 year old say, or 15 year old who comes in and then they wanna sing Tomorrow from Annie, I'm a little afraid like right before it starts <laughs> because I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, oh dear, what, what's going to happen? Um, especially the ones from New York because they have Broadway and they've seen it a million times. Then all of a sudden we get this yelling and I'm just like, okay, let's try this. I want you to, let's sing a different piece and I wanna actually hear your, your uh, your natural voice without pushing so hard. And so at first it throws the student off because they've established a certain level of proficiency with, I mean, even with bad technique, you can still be pretty good using it. So sometimes we have to uh, disassemble that and then rebuild the singer. That's the only issue with starting older is you may, you may have more time undoing poor technique. The younger that they can start, then they can build proper technique from the start. Yeah, I think it, I will agree that it's very important uh, for technique to really be the the foundation of musicianship to make sure that everything is healthy and working in the way that it should. I also, you know, have another mind about the way that there are so many uh, traditions within so-called classical music that are rooted in, you know, problematic histories or, or just mm -hmm. a single way of, of thinking. I wonder how you engage that conversation in your work, you know, dismantling certain traditions or harmful traditions mm -hmm. while holding on to what you think is uh, important and useful to the students. Yes, and so the way that, that we handle that is, is just, I think, through a strong commitment to inclusion. Mm -hmm. And I mean, some people may disagree with me, but for me, inclusion does not mean canceling great music of the past. To me, inclusion means being more open-minded to so much uh, additional great music that's out there. And then with having an artistic planning committee that's fully aware of that, that ensures that composers and, um, and uh, music from cultures around the world are a huge part of what we do. Our goal actually in programming is for the students to see themselves reflected in the music that we do. So the languages that are spoken, we actually do a, um, a survey to see what are the cultures in the NCC? What uh, are the languages most spoken? And then we actually curate a season to make sure that, I mean, that uh, the music is as close to a reflection of our membership as possible. So, uh, so, so no, we don't, we don't cancel classical music, but at the same time, we're very proactive about uh, creating new music and making sure that voices and cultures and traditions that have been uh, many times underrepresented in the past, that they are in fact represented in a significant and meaningful way in our organization presently and moving forward. So when you take these polls, I wonder how you uh, react to seeing um, a culture or a way of thinking not represented within the ensemble. I wonder if you could speak to ways that you've uh, broken down barriers for would-be students that, you know, for some reason may not be able to, at least not through the traditional pathways. 
Yeah, so, so for instance, sometimes uh, we will see that there are cultures um, and languages in the NCC where choral music, which uh, in many ways has had uh, its roots in Europe or in European music, uh, that there may not be that many pieces actually written in the language that we want to feature or in the culture that we want to feature. And so uh, rather than let that discourage us, it encourages us and it excites us to create a commission. So we will then, like we just commissioned a piece and presented the world premiere of it at Carnegie Hall um, of a piece called Dia Jalain, and uh, it celebrates the, uh, um, the holiday of Diwali in India. Mm -hmm. And so we've sung some, some of the few Indian uh, or pieces in Hindi choral music in the past, but we feel that there needs to be more out there. So we take on the responsibility of commissioning those new works and making them available uh, for publishing after we do the premiere so that other children's choirs around the world can utilize that music as well. We really want to add to the art form. And so we do that through our commissioning. And we're very particular, especially now, about who gets commissioned uh, and what we are intentionally adding to, uh, to the field. Yeah, I wonder if you'll speak a little bit more uh, to that intentionality behind who you commission? Do you look at composers who have previous experience with youth ensembles, specific sorts of, uh, you know, cultural ideas? How, how do you, how do you begin when, when you decide that you want to commission something new? So I'd have to say that we commission composers of all, of all levels. And there are three main levels that I identify. Uh, first off, people would find it interesting. We actually have a, a very strong composition program at the NCC where many of our own students' works and compositions have been sung by their peers within the chorus. So uh, there's that. We've commissioned students as, as young as you know, 13, 14 years, years old. Uh, we also commission young and upcoming composers in their late 20s, early 30s who are not very well known, but sort of building a name for themselves locally. Sorry, I'm gonna give you four levels. That, that was the second one. <laughs> we, we then commission composers who are young and up and coming that are of a higher notoriety. Perhaps they are nationally known. They are not superstar level yet. So they are not a Philip Glass or they're not an Eric Whitaker mm -hmm. uh, or uh, they don't have that level of fame but they are definitely on their way. So we commission that third level as well. And finally, yes, we do commission Eric Whitaker and we do commission Morton Lordson and we do commission uh, uh, the, the um, you know, uh, another one, Nico Muley. So uh, the uh, composers who are already extremely well-established writing music for major orchestras in the Metropolitan Opera. And so uh, we're open to commissioning at all different levels and we do feel there is a place and an important uh, reason to give opportunities to each of those levels that I mentioned. And speaking of all of these uh, grown-up musicians that you're <laughs> mentioning, these professional ensembles, you do still a bit of work uh, in the you know professional uh, realm, I wonder if uh, your work with youth, your work with children, informs your work with adults in any way. 
It does. And the, the easiest way I can describe that is that I think we are all, we're all kids <laughs> inside, <laughs> even though that we look older and uh, we, we act smarter. I don't know that we are than <laughs> the children, but uh, I think uh, there's, there's a kid in, um, in, in every adult. And, I, and that's not to say that you would address a group of adults in the same way that you would uh, children. But at the same time, adults need the same level of engagement that children do. And the mistake I think I see often, especially when it comes to professional ensembles, is this. The conductors know that the players and singers are paid, that they have to be there. And so I don't see a lot of intentional engagement of the players or of the vocalists in terms of who they are as people. I don't see a lot of humor. I don't see a lot of smiling in the rehearsal. It's just all business. And sure, they'll do what you say because they're professional and they're paid. But I've also seen conductors who truly get it. Uh, and one, not to mention his name again in, in this interview, but, uh, but uh, Eric Whitaker is one of my favorite, not, not only composers, but conductors, because when he works with the group, he engages them as people. They're not just professional musicians. And he makes it fun and engaging. And you'd be surprised how much more you will get out of your professionals, even though that they're professional and supposed to play and sing perfectly no matter what, you're going to get a huge percentage more from them musically and professionally when you actually engage them as people. And uh, that's a similarity that I think we can draw between uh, working with adults and working with children is children need that. And people forget that adult professionals they need that too. And you actually are going to get a better result from them if you, if you remember that. So what does that look like practically engaging students as humans and not just young musicians? It can't be a free for all after all. It's, it's a definitely a rehearsal, but I think yeah. keeping things tight and strict may not also be a, a great way to go. Yeah, so it's it, it definitely is a, a very delicate balance. And we do tell this to all of the conductors of the National Children's Chorus. Obviously, we have to have a consistent approach to rehearsal and the way that we treat our singers nationwide. And we have so many conductors in so many cities. But we, we in our training and in our uh, manuals in terms of how to approach the children, um, you need both. So yes the rehearsal has to be run with incredible efficiency of course it has to be strict in terms of rehearsal starts at five you know it's 4 59 the kids are talking and it hits five it's time to start everyone be seated talking is not allowed blah 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 let's start at bar one but at the same time uh something happens and we laugh and then and then uh, the conductor cracks a joke and says you know uh, uh, something about the piece and the, stu the students have a ball and they're, they're laughing. It's like, okay, 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 back to, back to measure 62. So th there's that balance. Um, you can't have an absolutely dry rehearsal that's all about the discipline, but at the same time, you can't have a rehearsal that's not getting the job done. So you really need to do both. You have to be funny, engaging, and you have to be an effective teacher at the same time. So uh, it requires both things and one without the other, there, uh, 
uh, both will fail at the at the end of the day. So you really need to bring the two together in a very healthy balance. And I think among the things that, you know, have to really be in the cake mix, so to speak, is how this training, how this engagement is creating uh, eventual adults that are, you know, taking leadership in our society. I, I wonder if you could speak to how the National Children's Chorus prepares youth for the next stages, college, the music industry, even just the general workforce. Absolutely. So it even says it in our mission statement. We're well aware that the students have a limited amount of time with us and uh, through music, building positively contributing members of society is one of our our main goals. through self-realization, through the learning of life skills, through the learning of mutual respect, working together as a team. Like imagine all of those skills. That's why it's not really important if a student ends up going to Juilliard or if they end up, you know, going into tech. These are these are skills that you need no matter what you're doing. Uh, if you end up being a conductor or if you end up being, you know, a a CEO or a COO, or you're managing a large group of people, all of these skills are are really important. So we're very aware that we are uh, developing them toward the future. And of course, we give them extra help and assistance um, as they are then um, moving uh, toward uh, their college applications. So we do have a specific we do have a very specific uh, program in place. It's a partnership with a firm in New York called College Prep 360. And so they also give free seminars at the NCC, helping them with the key aspects of building a strong college application. We also offer special training to students who want to be music majors as well. One of the things that intimidates me about parents. I'm, I'm not a father, but one of the things that I think about when the, the idea crosses my mind is just the responsibility that lies within forming sort of the cognitive thinking of a child, the way that uh, a child just thinks about things. There are so many um, forces that are working to protect children from certain things in 2023, some, some for better, some for worse. But I wonder how you engage that conversation, maybe specifically uh, with parents when it comes to musical training versus human training. Yes, uh, I, I think that, that, that we, we're very transparent with the parents in terms of we are here to be partners with you in developing your, uh, in, 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 your, in your child's development. And so, Music is part of that, but we're we're here to help in a number of different ways. Sometimes parents will tell us our child is having a problem in the classroom in school. And with that knowledge, we then are sometimes able to alter certain uh, elements in the classroom and perhaps enhance or give that student a certain leadership role that will then boost their confidence in a certain way that will then cause you know, other benefits in other areas of their lives. So we really see our relationship with the parents as partners in building these children up. Is there a, a, a parent's chorus or a parent's ensemble or, <laughs> or, or whispers of one maybe? <laughs> we, we have received requests for that. And the, the closest thing that we've done 
to that is on our tour this past year, we introduced a new feature where the students were not allowed, only parents came in and parents had sort of a, a breakfast experience. And then we taught them a piece of music and we said, this is the song that you're going to surprise your children with. The parents will sing for the children at our farewell dinner on the last night of the tour. And so the students were like blown away hearing their, their parents sing, you know, some of, most of our parents are pretty good singers actually, but you know, the, the students are, their ears are so well-trained that, you know, uh, anytime that there's uh, someone singing out of tune, they're really hard on their parents. I'm just like, okay, <laughs> give them a break. So I think they sound pretty fantastic. So yes, a little bit. How do you, uh, uh, th this just came to me when, when you're, th when you're talking about parents, I wonder if you notice a difference between the second or third generation musician versus the child who has no musicians in, in their family. Yes, I, I sometimes do see that children of established composers or children of musicians, they sometimes have earlier development skills, meaning that, you know, years beyond, I mean, years before they should be able to do something, they already can. And so I think that's not just in music, but in sports as well. Sometimes the children of incredible athletes already show an affinity for what they do, probably because it's in their family culture in addition to the genetic disp uh, disposition. But I think that uh, at the end of the day, uh, I, I don't think it, it uh, affects the final result. Hmm. And so I, I've had students where their parents say, we know nothing about music. And the child even starts off with a, a small level of skill, but really has a huge amount of talent. Um, there's one singer that I'm thinking of uh, right now. Uh, she just did her first year at Juilliard getting her master's degree. And I'm 100% sure, I mean, she has a major f future in front of her. Her parents were not professional musicians. And uh, you know, th this is sort of like a first for them. So I, I don't feel that it affects the final outcome, but I, but I do think that you can see it in the early stages, like a head start. Yeah. And I wonder if you would say that any child can be developed. I'm thinking, you know, from my own experience, you know, once upon a time, I majored in uh, music education. I, I quickly switched when it was time to actually engage children. I, <laughs> I discovered that that wasn't my calling. But, you know, in, in that training, I just, among the other things I discovered was that being a brass player of any type wasn't going to work. I could never teach a young trumpet player because there's, there's no way that my body can physically do that. Can a child with small skills or maybe even no skills still be developed? Is, is there opportunity there for every child? Or maybe there are some, <laughs> I hate to say it, but maybe there are some children who should engage pottery or instrumental music or mm -hmm. something different. Well, I, I, I will say this. Um, yes, not, not every child uh, w will have the, I mean, it comes down to physiology in, in, in the end, or will, will not have the physical uh, capability to, you know, to be a soloist at the Metropolitan Opera or to take their career to the level of a Rene Fleming or something like that. Uh, at the same time, uh, almost, almost every child that we've worked with who shows a, a strong desire to grow, they build a considerable amount of skill. Hmm. It may not be to the point where they're going to apply to music school as a voice major, but they're still a competent singer. 
And what I love about the human voice, like so many people discredit themselves. I don't know where it's come from. There's just this general sense in society, like, oh, I can't sing. Like I, I the one thing I hear a lot is I'm, I'm tone deaf. I was like, well, you're not really tone deaf because you're talking to me right now with a very sophisticated and um, like a very specific pitch in your voice. Like if you were truly tone deaf, your voice would be all over the place when you're talking to me. So you're actually very skilled at using your voice and singing is just an extension of that. So I think that there's been this um, misinformation that you know people can't sing, but you just need to learn how to use your voice. The voice is the most intuitive. I mean, you're using it the most of anything you know, since the moment that you're born. So people are more able to use their voices in a positive way than they think. And again, maybe not to the level of, of a superstar, but still to a level of enjoyment and, and a level of skill where if they wanted to sing in a community chorus or, or wanted to sing in a certain capacity, they could absolutely do it. Yeah. And I'll, I'll ask, I'll close us out by uh, asking a follow-up to that. But before I do that, what are some of the um, upcoming events or opportunities for, you know, August and beyond that you think people should know about? Well, in August, we are holding our third annual opera camp. It's a new initiative that we started a few years ago. And the idea is to engage young people in the art of opera, not just by showing them operas, which, which I think is, has its place, but I think that, uh, and I also was really astounded to discover when I was doing research, there are almost no operas written for children. Mm. Uh, I think I counted in my maximum research was between 30 and 40 at all. Um, there's a lot of uh, operas that are written for children to watch, but not to perform. Mm -hmm. And so... I feel that I wanted to create a program where we are going to be commissioning composers almost every year to write a new opera that's appropriate for children and for their voices. Uh, nothing that is, you know, that that's uh, too difficult for them to perform, but something that gives them a chance to engage in this art form. It's really important, I think, for the future of opera and for the future of singing. You know, uh, opera houses will need audience members, board members, performers, and the younger that students are engaged in an art form, the much more likely they are to be interested and pursue and to support in the future. And so even though uh, the National Children's Chorus is, is, a, is a chorus, we also are creating that, that sub-entity of, uh, of an opera company as well to, to support that area of singing too. Yeah, I'm sorry. I know I said one more question, but now I have another one based on what you've said. When you when you talk about operas that are uh, appropriate for children, you know, one of the, uh, a, a children's chorus moment in an opera that I'm thinking about right now is uh, in uh, Humperdinck's Hansel and Gretel, where in the production I saw, not only do kids, you know, push the evil witch into the oven, but you know, she's fully cooked and baked out and I, the curtains close as children are gnawing on limbs. And <laughs> sort of thing. How, how do you personally measure what's appropriate for, for children when it comes to musical subject matter? And see, that's really fun. And so uh, what and so but in, instead of having children be a part or a little section of an adult opera, mm. what we're trying to do is create operas that are for the children 
for children that are curated especially for them where they are they are the entire piece and they also sing all of the lead roles and everything like that so uh we did an opera last year that i thought was really fun uh subject matter we did uh the odyssey by ben moore and it was about odysseus and all of the trials and tribulations that he experienced with the monsters you know uh in greek mythology as he was making his way back home to ithaca so the students had a blast uh the bonding of the cast was so incredibly amazing and so we're excited to grow that program it's in its infancy at this moment but it's being run by really capable people and and we're excited to contribute uh to opera as well yeah that's beautiful that's beautiful well in in closing you know i do want to acknowledge that there are so many parents so many children whose lived experiences don't really uh allow for a vision of the value of music education developing the the voice i wonder what your words are to those folks people who don't really see a usefulness of this in their real everyday struggles as human beings in the 21st century Yes, and to what I would say to that is, is, is those people may be looking at the practical aspect, like, can my child get a job singing and you know mm -hmm. make a living? Uh, not everybody can do that, but the benefits of singing are so powerful, uh, from mental health to uh, to emotional well-being, to bringing your heart rate down, to blood pressure, to I mean the the list goes on and on in terms of how beneficial singing is, especially when singing in a group of of people. Those are so important, uh, arguably more important than you know, uh, your choice in terms of what you're going to do to make a living. And so I would say that it, it is important uh, for students to participate in music. I see it sort of almost as a meditation mm -hmm. because when you are singing and fully engaged in singing, like everything else disappears. And I think, you know, we have so many voices in our heads that are, you know, going on constantly during the day that when you're singing, everything just falls away. The only thing that remains is the true you and that's expressing this music. And so that's one of my uh, theories as to why singing is so powerful in terms of self-development is it really brings you in touch with the you that exists when all of the noise stops and all you are is yourself expressing this music. leading the National Children's Chorus in a tune called Tomorrow Shall Be My Dancing Day. Hope you enjoyed our chat and hope you'll support the National Children's Chorus. As one of the great composers once sang, I believe the children are our future, right? So let's support those who support them. Thanks again to Luke for joining me this week. Okay, it's time for the Triloquy. And this is a topic that I think is going to circle back around because it's a really important one. So. Let's say you're a composer and you get an orchestra to perform one of your pieces. 
seven out of 10 times, you can't post that performance on your website or give it to your friend who works at the radio station. Recording agreements between orchestra management and orchestra musicians, really the unions uh, as well, are built to protect musicians in this way. The idea is that musicians should be compensated when their work is broadcast, which, you know, I, I understand philosophically. Um, the problem is, though, because no one can really pay for free use, Composers often find themselves unable to share recording of their own work, especially works that only exist uh, in a recording by one ensemble. It's like you wrote a thing, it was realized, but you don't have the rights to your own thing. I was going to bring up this topic uh, sometime down the line uh, because my job deals with this issue a lot, but it came up on Facebook today. Shout out to Damian Jeter. So I thought I would bring it uh, to the front this week. Um, and again, I'll be brief, but I think the problem here that we're really getting to is capitalism. I understand that a musician needs their coins, but to what end and by what means? Uh, I, I'd air a lot more music in whole, you know, in, in its uh, its original whole form here on Triloquy if it weren't for these rules. You can often share a portion of a piece of music or a song, depending on the union contract or the copyright, but, you know, the largest ones I tend to see are only three minutes of so, uh, three minutes or so of use. Um, but anyway, yes, my response to this issue is that maybe the so-called classical field needs to think about shifting rules toward composers in this way, where we're building these CBAs and creating these contracts, um, these copyrights and these agreements. I'm not saying make it just a complete free for all necessarily, but what if we standardize free use for the composers? of the work. So I like the idea of a composer being able to share any recording of their own work however they please. It's them, it's theirs as a part of their body of work. I, I think it's I think that sounds okay to me. But for us to get there, we got to talk about these residuals. I don't suppose most orchestral musicians are making a lot of money from recordings unless, you know, you're in one of the big orchestras that has a recording contract or something. But for composers to get a fair shot out here, we have to decide that residual payments aren't more important than a composer's ability to share their own creations. Because if an orchestra can't pay these residuals for every broadcast, for every stream, that means it just sits there collecting dust. And, and that doesn't help anyone, especially the composer. We can't nickel and dime each other in an industry <laughs> where most of us only have nickels and dimes in the first place. It just doesn't work. If composers you know, were raking in money all the time and living disproportionately more comfortable than musicians and other folks around here, maybe I would think of this different. Now, some of y'all composers are living pretty good, but but even uh, for them, you know, they deserve to be able to share their creations, I would say, right? Um, if you work for an orchestra, either on the musician side or the management side, I wonder if you could think about how you might help solve this issue for the sake of composers. I say we just normalize a new standard for the sake of these composers at the union level, at the collective bargaining level. Um, but if y'all have something different in mind, great. As long as we're getting to the crux of this thing and not just, you know, talking about the streams only because it's about composer livelihood and it's about the future of this, you know, so-called genre. They're how composers, these living composers, they're how we're going to escape the Eurocentricity of classical programming. They're how we're going to get a broader array of folks at concert halls and ultimately I believe they're how we're going to try and decolonize this whole thing and move even further toward maybe one day decolonizing our American society here. Thanks so much for listening. Always a pleasure. Until next week.